On this episode of The Grow Show, we take your questions from inbound.org for Mike. The things that I like to look for in terms of executive level folks is, would their teams, you know, if they left the company, would their most of their team be like, wherever that person went, like, I want to go work there. We are right at the cusp of something huge. We are at a crossroads and the future is completely within our control. We're living through the single biggest culture shift of our time. This is the time for us to just really take charge. That's what revolutions do. They enable the impossible. You're listening to The Growth Show with Mike Volpe. Hey everybody, thanks for listening to another episode of The Growth Show. I'm Dave Gerhardt and I have a special guest with me today, uh, none other than the man himself, Mike Volpe. Hey Mike. Dave, thanks a ton for having me on the show. It's great to be here. <laughs> I was gonna do a you know a long intro, but I was like, you know, people best know you as the host of the Growth Show, anyway. So. Right, that's definitely what I'm most famous for. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so um, we're doing a fun little episode. We got a bunch of awesome questions for Mike uh, in a AMA on Inbound.org. So we just ask Mike anything. Ask, it was ask Mike anything. Yeah. You can't <laughs> not do ask an me AMA. Any, not ask me anything. Mike. Ask Mike anything. Yeah. <laughs> so. Um, going to run through some of the questions that people submitted and hopefully come up with some good advice. But if there's a question that we didn't get to or you just have another question for Mike, um, always feel free to tweet at us. Just use the hashtag growth show. We check that all the time. So feel free to submit questions there or go back to inbound.org slash growth and submit questions there as well. Uh, so, all right, Mike, here we go. First question. If you got a check payable only to HubSpot's marketing department for a billion dollars this week, what would you spend it on and why? So a billion dollars is a lot of money. So the first thing I do is I'd increase everyone's salary by like 10x, which wouldn't even touch the billion dollars and we'd all be super psyched, right? Okay. No, no. So it really was for the marketing department. And I think, you know, but I get the point of the question. A billion dollars is so much money. I don't even know how we would spend that all. But um, but let's say we double the marketing budget or mm-hmm. something like that. Uh, the, the thing, I would, I would hire a lot more people and I would hire across a lot of different disciplines. I think what we found, you know, we did this experiment a few months ago where we started doing a little bit of uh, paid advertising to send more traffic to the blog. And after doing that for a couple months, yes, it drove more traffic to the blog, but we looked at the cost of that traffic from advertising versus what it would cost us to hire another blogger and the traffic we would expect from publishing more articles. And hiring the person had a much better ROI than doing the advertising. So I think that's the kind of thing we have found over and over again is that hiring people to create content and do inbound, it takes more people and less program budget. Uh, And so I think a lot of the things we would do would be uh, just hire a lot more people. So, you know, bloggers, uh, people great at copywriters, probably a lot more on the creative side, you know, web design, mm-hmm. web development, um, designers, you know, graphic designers, people that do video, um, you know, a lot of the content centric functions. So we'd probably hire a ton more people. Uh, and then certainly if it's a billion dollars, I think we'd also figure out just how to do some crazy shit. Like literally they give a million people a free t-shirt. Or, I mean, because that would cost you what, like $20 million? You'd like, definitely nothing see the you know, first HubSpot Super Bowl ad. Oh, we, we would do a big, we would, we would, yeah, some huge Super Bowl ad or we would, you know, I mean, tw- a billion dollars, we could buy a sports team. That's true. You know, not okay. a, not a top sports team, no, but I a think, second I think tier Clippers, sports team. The Clippers sold for 2 billion last summer. Was so. it two? Yeah. So probably not NBA, but we could buy like a, like a second tier baseball team, like what a second tier market and just rename them like the HubSpots or something mm-hmm. like that. Like mm-hmm. I think there's weird things like that that we'd probably do, but no, the biggest thing, if we, if we doubled our budget, I would, I would mostly hire a lot more people. So sometimes the key to growth this might sound silly, but the key to growth can actually be growth, like just getting more people to, to produce what you know is working. 
Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think, I mean, I think it's what we've seen over time. It's why we have, you know, when I started, we had me, I was the only blogger. And now we have a blogging team of, I think the six or seven dedicated bloggers that we have. All right. How much of the let's fail until we succeed mentality was a core idea of HubSpot itself as a company versus coming uh, particularly from you? Yeah. I, so I don't know where this this question came from because we definitely don't want to like fail as much as possible. Like, yeah. I, like I understand the sentiment of the question, yeah. which is like, you know, it's okay to experiment and sort of, you know, things like that are cool. Um, and it's okay. And then like failure is okay. And you should sort of embrace that. But the idea wasn't like fail as many times as possible until we stumble upon something successful. The idea is to try to be successful the first time. But I think, I think the big, the big thing that we've been able to do is we've established a culture that embraces uh, people trying things and it's okay to not be successful in every single single thing that you do. Mm-hmm. And there are things that we do that are not successful. We try to celebrate those failures as, you know, as long as it was a well-run experiment. And that's partly marketing team here, but it's also just the overall company. I think Brian and Darmesh have really set that, you know, from the beginning as part of the overall culture. I think it's something we sort of think about on the product side of the, of the company as well. Um, and we try have tried to run lots of experiments. I think it's more of sort of a startup mentality, and I'm glad we've been able to maintain that even as a larger company. So I'm going to skip ahead one question because I think this one uh, is a nice segue into what we were just talking about. So mm-hmm. Um, Mike, the HubSpot blog is full of posts about service level agreements. Um, I know HubSpot marketers have SLAs in place with your sales organization, but it's not clear what incentives your marketers have to achieve their SLAs or performance quotas. What kind of incentives or rewards are built into their compensation plans or performance evaluations? I will kind of want to lead you because you've talked no, I know about we've talked we've talked about this before, and as I have, and anytime anyone asks a question in this area, I have kind of my you know theme of answer that that you've heard before, I, you know, and I think it is interesting because you're right. And what I would say is, what you want out of your marketing team is a team that is willing to try new things and willing to experiment. And in order to get that, you need to free them from the chains of their compensation being directly tied to what they do every single day. So unlike a sales rep that you can pay for uh, for each you know each deal you sign up, I'm going to give you a thousand extra dollars. With marketing, if it's every ten leads, I'm going to give you twenty bucks or something like that. The bad part about that is they're so worried about their compensation, like oh gosh, if I don't get a thousand leads and I'm not going to get paid X this month, that they're they become very conservative and they're unwilling to do things that could generate ten thousand leads because they want to make sure they reach these a thousand so they can pay their rent that month. And you probably find like that employees start optimizing for the wrong things. Like if I was compensated on blog visits or podcast downloads or something, then that's all I'm going to think about, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. So the other thing that happens, so not only do you get really worried about it, like let's say it was, you know, for you, let's say it was podcast downloads. You would just want to make sure, you know, if we did 50,000 last month and that was the goal, you would want to make sure you hit 50, not figure out how do I reach 500,000. And on the path to maybe reaching 500,000, maybe you drop down to 10 one month, right? Because then it's like you can't make your mortgage payment, all that stuff. So, um, and, and what it does is you're totally right. It sort of reduces that level of creativity, right? Which is kind of a bad thing. So, so your advice on paying marketers is... Yeah, no, it's read Daniel Pink's book, Drive. And after reading that book, you will, you will even think about paying your sales reps not on commission. And so then you're definitely going to say, don't pay your marketers on commission. Um, I sort of, I sort of equate it to like short term, long term. Like in marketing, you need to play for the long term. So it's like you're a baseball player. So you're, you're, you're big poppy. You're David Ortiz. You're playing for the Red Sox. If you strike out, they don't fire you or cut your pay, 
right? You're going to have a lot of at-bats over the course of the season. And same thing, if you hit a grand slam, they don't give you a $100,000 bonus right there. Be like, hey, good grand slam. It's 100 great, right? right? But it's like over the course of the season, they want to see a good performance, a good on-base percentage, good hitting percentage, lots of RBIs. And that's the way to think about it from marketing's perspective. So it's more the long term. So we absolutely, as you know, as you know, Dave, like we give people performance evaluations. We give people either, you know, more pay and more stock. If they're doing well, there's promotions. There's definitely a tie of your performance to your compensation, but it's not in this micro scale of what it, how many leads you generate last week or last month, right? Yeah. It's not like, hey, Big Poppy, you had a good week last week. Here's some more money. It's like, okay, you have a multi-year contract and it's sort of more of, it's a longer term relationship, but it's yeah. definitely tied to performance. It's just not tied directly the way in a, like a commission sense. All right. A lot, a lot of questions about uh, team and marketing, which is interesting. So Mike, I want to know how you set your team up for success. Does marketing follow the traditional acquisition, conversion, retention setup? We're looking at models like Holacracy to create smaller autonomous teams, which fall across the typical marketing boundaries. Yeah. I'm, so at a high level, I am a huge fan of cross-functional teams. Uh, and we have some of that happening within marketing. I, uh, if I were to realign how all of HubSpot works, I would try to have more cross-functional teams that included marketing, you know, developers from product, product manager, sales, kind of working together. Uh, we have a few of those efforts happening throughout the company that I think are good. So I am generally a fan of cross-functional teams. Um, but the question was more like, how do we actually set things up? So we, we're sort of believers in the kind of the process of sort of attract, engage, convert, delight, right? Kind of the, the inbound marketing methodology. And for those, we, we roughly have teams that are sort of aligned with those things. There's there's always the reality of dealing with different uh, people that you have and the people are better or worse at maybe managing smaller or larger teams and some special skills. So you kind of kind of need to um, morph the perfect uh, whiteboard organization with the reality of the people that you have. But in your example, but, yeah. you could actually like dry funnel on a whiteboard and then instead of like leads in the funnel, you draw, you could see where the HubSpot team kind of sits. Pretty close. Yeah. So we have, you know, I would put kind of the content team. Um, you know, we have a VP of content that runs that team, which is, you know, the team that you're on. Mm -hmm. uh, and I really see them as sort of like the top of the funnel. How do we, how do we attract more people to our brand? So one of the things that you're doing with the podcast is getting more people to interact with HubSpot in a very, very just kind of an awareness sort of thought leadership kind of way. Right. Uh, and then after that, we have a funnel team and their job is to really take all the traffic that we're generating and how do we, you know, through landing pages and calls to action, get those people to convert on the website. And then also from there, get them to, uh, you know, to be more engaged in the sales process uh, and become customers. And that's through, you know, lead scoring and lead nurturing and personalized content and all those things that we do. Uh, and then we also have kind of in the, the later stages of the funnel, sort of in that convert kind of stage a product marketing team that does a lot of sales training and positioning and things like that for the sales team uh, to like help them really when they're talking to potential customers, you know, say the right things and have the right conversations with folks. And then we do actually in that sort of delight phase, we do actually have a small, we, that mostly falls in the services team here at HubSpot, but we do actually have a small like customer marketing effort and they, they play somewhat of a role in there too. Um, and then we also have this team called a brand and buzz team that kind of uh, it, you know, they do all of our creative support, events, PR, um, and a lot of our web design and things like that. And they sort of support, they kind of cut across and really support all the different teams in those functions. So it, roughly speaking, we kind of have a, a team that's aligned by the different stages of the funnel. And I, and I have always sort of espoused having a team that's aligned that way, mm -hmm. you know? All right. A couple more general ones for you. What was the tough, uh, what was the toughest lesson you had to learn as a CMO at HubSpot and how does it help you develop? 
Yeah, I thought about this one for a while, and I almost didn't uh, talk about this, but but I, I but I am going to talk about it. So when I joined HubSpot, it was it was five people, and very quickly we grew to sort of ten or fifteen or so. And it was funny because the culture of our organization at that time, it was almost like it was a it was like a partnership. The decision making was very much consensus driven. Brian and Darmesh and me and Mark Roberge and at the time Jonah Lopin and you know Yo Shapira and a lot of folks like that, sort of that early team, would get into a room and we just yell and scream and argue about stuff. And the decision was kind of made by like, you know, once the argument was over, sort of like which argument had sort of carried the day, there was there was literally zero sense of like, you know, Brian being like, I'm the CEO and I'm deciding this way. And I think some of it was like, you know, a lot of us just, you know, it's first time for a lot of us doing a startup, we just didn't know what we were doing. Uh, and so there wasn't a lot of that sort of like sense of authority. And as we started to get bigger, I had, you know, there were a couple sort of issues where, um, you know, I was butting heads with a couple other people in the company and things like that. And I finally had this long sit down with, with Darmesh and a couple other conversations. And I kind of got to the point that I realized that it, it actually wasn't a partnership, but that not necessarily a bad thing. Like it's sort of, you know, if you go back to the baseball or like a, you know, football or some team sports analogy where you have a role to play, and you need to do an awesome job at that role. And the whole team functions better if you just understand that this is my role. Like I played football in college and I was an offensive lineman. My job was not to touch the ball. My job was to keep people away from people that had the ball, yeah. right? And if I did that job phenomenally well, the team would win, we'd all be pumped and be psyched and be great and whatever. But for me to hop in the huddle and be like, no, 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 no. like we should actually run this play and we should do that, that was not at all my role. And even though I might've had things to add to that conversation, um, keeping quiet and doing what you're told at times is actually a really good thing for the overall team. Um, and I think that that's a lesson that I, so in the previous job I had that was relatively obvious culturally, coming into a new startup it was my first startup that I joined that early and at a more senior level. And I think it just, it took a couple of us to sort of a little while to sort of break through. And that's, and that's, and I think now in many ways, me embracing the role of like what a CMO is and what a CMO is not within the company has actually really, really helped the overall company sort of perform better, if that, if that makes sense. It's yeah, kind of it's a weird the, lesson. The, yeah, you, you're the offensive coordinator. You got to worry about the off, what the offense is doing and, and let whoever's running the defense take care of their, their team. Yeah, and if you have feedback for them that's kind of like, a, you know, grab them on Monday and like aside, like don't yell and scream at them in front of the entire team, right? Because that, yeah. you know, it's, it's going to be counterproductive. And I yeah. think the way we used to run the company for the first, you know, year or so was we all would yell and scream and sort of, um, complain about each other directly to each other in front of everyone else. And, yeah. it, and at 10 people, it kind of worked, but at 40, 50, 60 people, it started to not work very well. And that was something I had to sort of embrace. Okay, here's a, a little bit of a lighter one. Um, well, metrics-ish, but how can a CMO help maintain the balance between achieving growth and having a reasonable uh, cost of acquisition payback? And how does this balance change in a company's evolution over time? Oh boy. Um, so the the head of marketing has a huge role to play in balancing and managing the customer acquisition cost. Uh, in some ways more so than the sales team because typically the sales compensation, so like the expense of sales is typically tied to the acquisition, but the market, marketing is not. So what you need to be careful about doing is understanding like as you plan out your marketing budget, know what the customer acquisition goals are for each period and make sure when you do the math on those, it's not getting out of whack, right? either going way too high or frankly way too low because then you might not be investing for growth. So one of the things we look at at HubSpot when we're setting up our annual budgets is we look at a couple ratios. We look at the ratio of 
you know, what our customer acquisition cost or CAC would be if we hit all our projected customer acquisition numbers over the course of the coming year, as well as we look at like a marketing spend per sales rep that's carrying a quota. And we just make sure that those, you know, they may move around a little bit, but we make sure they're not, you know, going way up. We also make sure they're not going way down and we're expecting to get too much leverage. Mm -hmm. um, there was one point where we were looking at a budget and it's like those numbers started to go way down. And I sort of said, I'm not sure that we're investing enough in growth that those good numbers are going way down, right? So um, it's definitely your job as a CMO and um, uh, to sort of plan out that stuff and play that role within sort of the budgeting process. The great news is like as you grow as a company, um, the only thing that happens is you have more data and more budget and that allows you to be more accurate with your uh, with your sort of uh, managing of the spend and your sort of estimation of what that CAC is gonna be over time. And you also have a little bit more ability, like, you know, if we today wanna to run a 50 or $100,000 experiment, I can easily find a small portion, like 50 or 100,000 is a smaller portion of the budget, so you can run bigger experiments more often. Whereas in the early days, uh, you know, we had no money for any experiments because we only, we only had $50,000, we only had $100,000, you know, um, yeah. But your over, overarching advice there is if you stay metrics driven and you can have insight into those things, you'll know what's working over time. And yeah, no, I think that's, I mean, yes, we, we talk a lot about metrics in the show with David Scott and Tom Tungas. Like, yeah. like, the, like if you want more on metrics, listen to those two episodes. Yeah. yeah. All right. How do you keep the team motivated not only to hit their goals, but to continuously innovate and try new stuff? Uh, so I should, probably should ask you this question. I'll give you my answer. But like, if you have any, I mean, you're, you're on the team. You yeah, have some yeah. idea. Uh, so one thing I think I try to do is I try to set big goals. And especially when people's compensation isn't tied to either hitting or not hitting their goal, I feel much better. And this is another reason why that compensation thing we talked about earlier, you know, to tell, for instance, you know, Emma, who runs our sales blog. Yeah, at the beginning of the year, you had 100,000 monthly visits, but I want you to get to 500,000 this year. And she's more willing to accept that goal if... Um, you know, it, it, and by the way, if you don't hit that, you won't get paid anything. Like that's terrible, right? But if you're just like, hey, I'm going to pay you either way, but like, I think you can do it. Like, can we get to five hundred thousand? Give it to five. So one of it's just setting big goals, not setting incremental goals, but setting big goals that force people to rethink how they think about it. I mean, before we launched this podcast, we didn't tell you like, hey, we want to launch a podcast and get to ten thousand, you know, downloads a month. We said we want to be top ten in iTunes. Mm -hmm. Right, and that's like a bold goal when you have no podcast mm -hmm. and no following, right? And it was like, okay, and then you did a bunch of things to try to figure that out, right? right? Um, and then once you get there, now we're gonna like, okay, so your next goal is gonna be, we wanna be number one, right? So it's things like that. The second thing is on that, um, and I so set big goals, don't pay people on a commission basis. I think that's a big thing. Uh, and the third thing is occasionally, and we haven't done this in a little while, so maybe I should crack out this part of the playbook again. Um, we'll have like some big, wide, team-wide goal and then we'll have a big prize that goes along with that. Uh, and I remember probably the biggest one of this we did was um, it was a particular goal we were trying to hit, and we told the entire marketing team that we would get a, a luxury box at the upcoming Lady Gaga concert if we hit this goal. Uh, unfortunately, we hit the goal, which is great. Unfortunately, uh, Lady Gaga like hurt her hip and she had to cancel the rest of her tour. So we ended up having to change it, just getting a, a box, which is very, very nice at a Red Sox game. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it wasn't quite as cool as the Lady Gaga thing, okay. but I don't know, maybe I, we should, uh, there's a couple things we're working on. Maybe we should pick, crack that out again. Right. I don't know. I'm the director of marketing at my organization. Uh, what does a typical career path to CMO look like and what skills should I be thinking about and cultivating now? That's a good question. You know, um, for me, I was so I was director of marketing at a prior company, and uh, if I had stuck it out there for a number of years, I probably could have gotten to you know VP or CMO level. I think that's probably true. Um, I think it would have been a little harder and a little bit longer path. So for me, 
I ended up jumping to a much smaller company and taking a huge risk to join a really, really early stage company, but get the title that I wanted. And then I was sort of betting both on myself and on the company that it would grow into something and be kind of something like what it is today. Um, but I don't necessarily think that that's really how, how it has to be. My advice to someone who's kind of director of marketing would be a couple things. First, um, make sure you learn all the different parts of marketing. Uh, if you are a director of product marketing, I would encourage you to figure out a way to, you know, take a different role and become director of demand generation or director, director of sort of acquisition. Uh, and make sure you're learning different parts of marketing. I think that's really important because as a CMO, you need to have some familiarity with all these different pieces. Uh, the second thing is in terms of skills, it's much more around leadership and management than it is around marketing tactics. Uh, knowing the tactics gets you the respect and the ability to help the team um, improve and do a lot of coaching with the team. But the, uh, the skills that you really start to need, especially as your team gets bigger, is much more around leadership and management. And so the people that I would try to learn from would be more like you know, other CMOs as well as even to some degree CEOs and maybe board uh, of directors types of folks, things like that. Uh, and the interesting thing about CEOs and, and people on boards of directors, those are the people that hire VPs and CMOs, right? And so building more relationships with them and using them as potential mentors for you is what's going to put you more on that career track, I think. What do you think makes a great executive? I have no idea. A lot of stuff. I, don't, I mean, no idea. Yeah, I mean, a lot of things I just said, but I think, you know, for that, it, I mean, it really boils down to leadership and management, I, I feel like. And um, the things that I like to look for in terms of executive level folks is, would their teams, you know, if they left the company, would their most of their team be like, wherever that person went, like, I want to go work there, yeah. right? One of the most flattering things that somebody said to me once was somebody who no longer works at HubSpot, senior, relatively senior person who was on a different, not on the marketing team, somewhere else in HubSpot, pretty senior person. Uh, I was having, you know, lunch with him and a couple other people, a few of us who had worked at HubSpot. And he said, you know, hey, you know, something about like, you know, well, if you ever left and started a company, you know, there'd be people like, you know, competing with each other to like come work with you. And I was like, wow, like really, what are you talking about? Like who wants to work with me, right? Yeah. Um, and I was like, cool, like that's, and that's, this is one of the things that I look for in sort of those leaders. So I think a lot of it really boils down to sort of leadership and management. All right, we got to wrap up a couple fun ones. Um, what's your favorite chart in Excel? Uh, I love, so I love waterfall charts and it's not like a default Excel chart, but it's the one that we have on the core HubSpot dashboard, but it tracks your progress against a goal. And I think you should do those for, you know, lead generation, for MQLs, for sales, like all that stuff and just track your progress to all of your goals on a daily basis. It'll help you hit them. There's actually a great, I'll put the link in the show notes. There's a great video of you doing the whiteboard waterfall chart. I'll put that. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it might even be a template in there, yeah. but we definitely draw it up at least in the whiteboard so people can see it. What's one of your biggest business pet peeves? I hate jargon and buzzwords. I really, really do. And I, it's probably terrible because I probably use some of them. But like, you think that's why we people curse that, so much? Uh, maybe. Yeah. yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Could be. So uh, I feel like the, you know, the whole, I feel like there's like a job around, you know, the job called demand generation, you know, was originally called demand generation. And then it was called like acquisition. And then it's called like growth or like what it's, it's all the same freaking job. And it's just like, people are just making up new names for some the thing that's the same. Just like call it what it is. Yeah. Same thing with like big data and like predictive analytics and whatever. It's like, I don't know, like people are calling things big data that aren't really big data. And it's like, you know, it's, I don't know. I used to mess with some pretty big spreadsheets. Was that big data? Just like, you know, just use normal words that a normal human can understand. I think we would be that better off with yeah. less buzzword, uh, I We all would be. Yeah. This is a good one. Uh, if you had to, this is actually my favorite. If you had to rap or sing a song on the inbound 2015 stage, uh, which rap song would you perform? Oh boy. Um, 
We've got a def- we had Lottie Dottie for I know, years. I know, yeah, yeah. I'm definitely a sort of like late nineties, early two thousands rap person, and that's like all of my musical knowledge was during that period of my life. And I don't like I like I literally I get into my car and I listen to like, you know, all the streaming stations that are like nineties hip hop. That's like literally what I listen to. Yeah. So um I don't know, for me it would probably be something by Jay Z. Maybe some of his newer stuff with JT is pretty good. And, I, and Hey, so I could perform with JT. I could do Holy Grail yeah. with Justin Timberlake. Me and him, that'd be awesome. And we'll, we'll talk about Inbound later, but that's a good <laughs> plug to uh, get people there. How yeah. do you, you're a busy guy. How do you manage your email? Uh, email is tough. I try to not fall too far behind. Uh, I use a number of filters, so a bunch of like, you know, calendar and other notifications. I try to filter that stuff out automatically in Gmail. Um, I have a, I do use some stars that like the really important stuff I'll start to make sh- the things to put at the top of my inbox to make sure I get back to it later. And I do try as much as possible to kind of do the, these inbox zero sort of like one touch thing, like only touch an email once, either delegate it, delete it, or do something with it. Yeah. Um, the trouble is for me, so much of my email is done on my mobile and there's a lot of times where I'm like, oh, if I was at the desktop, I could find that thing and do this thing and get rid of the email, but I can't. And that's actually one of the things that holds me up is like the, the mobile is very good today, but it's not quite the same as the desktop experience. And that holds me back a little bit. All right. Last one. We'll wrap up with this one. Advice to other uh, execs. You're an executive public company leading a big team, you have important goals to hit, but you also have a family and kids. Uh, you work hard, but how do you balance those two things? You, re- you need to make time, and I think the thing that I try to do most is make sure that the time doesn't overlap between each other. And it doesn't mean the second you leave the office that you're not in work mode anymore, um, but it does mean that when you are home, like I have a shelf where I try to put my phone so it's not sitting in my pocket all the time. So I'm not constantly, I'm not playing with my kids and checking my phone because that's not fair to them. It's also not fair to the person I'm emailing on my phone, right? Um, so I do try to, like when I'm doing that time with family, I try to make it about family. And then certainly over the course of the weekend, like there's times where, you know, 20, 30 minutes, I'm doing whatever. And it's like, yeah, let me just see what's going on at work and bang out a couple emails and get back to some folks because uh, that's the way, you know, the life sort of works here. But, um, but I think you want to make sure that when you are doing your non-work time like make sure you're invested in that time like focus on it cool well mike this was fun uh thanks everybody for all those great questions keep them coming maybe we'll make this uh something we do frequently but you know tweet at us use the hashtag growth show go to inbound.org growth and if you've been enjoying the show make sure you go to itunes we'd really love a review that really does help a lot uh, so thanks again and we'll talk to you guys soon good Sound good? Keep talking? Hi. Now I know what it's like. God, this is bad. Is I'm, I'm so sorry. You're just you're sitting here and you're sort of like, you're sort of like, yeah, so what the F is going on in that room yeah. and what's happening over there? And you get no feedback. Louder? It's terrible. It's that's a terrible good. experience. All right. Yeah, that's good. Good. Okay. Thank you, Odette. It's gone. It's gone forever or until next time it comes back. <laughs>